Chapter Six of Clouds Cover the Campus by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Six. Dick and that ramshackle car of his, with the miraculous motor, drove Harry and me to the flying field. To the casual observer, we were three varsity lads in a very collegiate car. To ourselves, we were three detectives of the tradition of Lecoq and Holmes and Philo Vance, without the less taste for unspeakable cigarettes. For Harry was scheduled to make a solo flight, and we had prepared a carefully designed plot. We'd had breakfast together, the three of us. Harry, with the fatalism of the young pilot, had said, with all seriousness, Lads, I hate to croak so early in the morning, but the spirit of the raven is upon me, and everything I look at is black. Put more cream in your coffee, said I with heavy humor. Lads, said Harry, I've a hunch that my number's up. You're crazy, the two of us replied, with such precise quarrel effect that anyone could detect our own fears. An icicle seemed to be running up and down my spine. Dick looked like a sick goldfish. Oh, we were a happy party, no doubt of it. During the time it takes to consume a piece of toast, so much white pine, we were all silent. I was the one to break the silence, and I felt like the judge, who has just put on the black cap. Harry, I said, you've two alternatives. Don't go up. And lose my nerve for good and all? Nope. Better be dead than yellow. Or, I continued, thrusting at him the second horn of my dilemma, and feeling a little sick as I did so, fly for one day, not as Morin tells you to do, but as I tell you. Harry laughed a little weakly a little ironically. Show me your pilot license, laddie. I think, Dick explained, that he's operating under a detective's license this time. So I talked fast. I must have talked convincingly, too, for in a minute they were listening, in two minutes they were sitting forward and breaking crusts in their fingers, and another thirty seconds they had riveted their eyes on my face, and at last they were nodding in agreement. That's why, as we drove toward the field, we wondered whether we were going to meet old man Death face to face, or whether an angel of deliverance would lead us on to... Who knew what solution to our problems? Morin himself was at the field when we arrived. He stood, hands behind his back, chin sunk far down in his stiff collar, pallor riding his face, circles half-mooning his eyes. My first instinct was to feel intensely sorry for him. My second was to think back to that sprig of milkweed, that other trifle that had suddenly made us regard this fine officer with suspicion. Then I pushed the whole idea away as preposterous. Suspicions born of a shred of milkweed, utterly nonsensical, and too fantastic for further consideration. I concentrated on the plans that lay ahead. Rodriguez was rolling out a single-seater. Two mechanics were manipulating the wings, swinging them slowly into the wind. I noticed and it checked perfectly with what I had suspected, that the small plane was capped with a tight hood, one that could be pulled completely over the pilot, airproof glass like a small awning. Up to that second I wondered if we might not be running on the wildest of wild goose chases. The sight of that particular kind of plane, my knowledge of planes is that of the amateur, and I can only describe, not define or explain in technical terms, made my heart skip a beat. We were sending Harry aloft to death, or to the solution of our puzzle of death and espionage. Deep down in my heart I prayed. My sincerity must have made that brief prayer more than a little effective, that it would be a flight to safety for all of us. 
Harry jumped from the car and snapped on his helmet and goggles. He put on his flying clothes in the dorm. One of the instructors meandered forward, deliberately offhand and indifferent, to help him buckle on his chute. I wandered out to watch him, standing a little distance away, and winking at him reassuringly. A reassurance that, at that moment, I wished I had, for my stomach was riding close to seasickness, and I kept my hands clenched to hide their clamminess and their tendency to jitter. Was it, I wondered, deliberate, or just a matter of my seeing things? Morin looked our way swiftly. Then he tracked away from us, strode over to where his chauffeur and orderly were loafing near his powerful car, now so much an object of interest to us, gave the fellow a sharp order, and then moved further off from us and toward the control boards of the field. I saw him talk to the man who wore the headphones, and then heard his car cutting away in the direction of his residence. The instructor of the flight was taking over. He stood facing Harry and giving him final instructions. I could hear the short, staccato, technical phrases, and I saw Harry's nods of obedience. All the while I kept thinking, what a waste of time. For whether or not he was listening to the instructions, Harry had no intention of heeding them. If he went up according to normal schedule, and came down as the others had come down, what difference did any orders make? If he found that he could execute our plans, he wouldn't permit the orders to stand in his way. I could hear behind me the engine in its final stage of warming up. The powerful motor humming like the song of a mighty archangel should have been reassuring. But it wasn't. What happened to the planes happened, not on the ground, but when they were up, way out of reach of help and hope of safety. Dick had turned his car around and was sitting at the wheel with the motor idling. With a final nod to Harry, I got in beside Dick. Together we watched our young pilot climb into his plane, saw Rodriguez help him pull the glass hood over his head, heard the engine spit fire in a final burst of power, and then listened rather than looked as Harry, all alone, taxied out onto the field and into the wind. Morin stood with a phone in his hand, following the plane with an anxiety which even at this distance I could see and feel. Rodriguez stepped back, and the gesture he made as he wiped his hands on his greasy overalls might have been one of dismissal of the pilot in the plane. Horrible, isn't it, that when one is expecting sinister events, one sees signs and symbols and portents in the gestures of a man rubbing his hands on the legs of his pants. The plane taxied, then raced into the wind, then cut off for a low circle of the field. Let's go, I said quietly. Dick threw his car into low, ground into high without a bow to second, and we were cutting down the road. Over my shoulder I watched the plane. God bless old Harry. He was following our plan perfectly, and I could see in the open spaces around the field sudden consternation and the rapid, nervous movements of a dozen figures. And no wonder... For instead of mounting rapidly and in constantly widening circles, Harry had hit an altitude of not more than five hundred feet, and in a beeline was flying directly above our heads, almost as if he were racing our car. As a matter of fact, we were racing him. That would be a job, even if he held back his speed. He was in the almost frictionless air, and we were traveling along the cement highway. Dick concentrated on the road and the eighty-five he was hitting, I kept my eyes on Harry, who, to the casual observer, seemed to be practically hedge-hopping. He cleared the section of the university forest that bounded the far end of the field, was over the farm of Old Nordling, our nearest neighbor, throwing a broad shadow on the orchards of the next farmer, 
name unknown, rose slightly to follow the contours of a low range of hills, and cut in a straight line across the level meadow, where the patient cows ignored his shouting motor. All this time our flying car almost matched the flying plane. Ours was trick-driving, the sort of thing for which people are paid in the motion pictures. But it was Dick who was doing it, and it was Dick whom we had to thank for hiding that superlative motor in what looked like the first of the tin lizzies. Then what we had feared began to happen. We saw the plane slip from its straight, arrow flight, and jitter a bit in the air. It's getting him, I cried, all tense nerves. He has only about five miles to go, said Dick, who could watch a road and an instrument board at the same time. He's losing altitude, or the land is sloping up, and he's flying in that same line. Say a prayer, said Dick, through gritted teeth, and I knew he meant it. I said the prayer from the very tops of my shoes, and as our car ate up the concrete road in the manner of a dragon sucking in noodles, I saw the flat, level field that was our objective. Ahead and to the right, I cried to Dick. I get you, he answered. The plane, wobbling a bit again, was circling and dropping, lower and lower, much, oh, much too fast for our peace of mind, the plane came down. It was no three-point landing that he made. It was a kind of jumpy, bumping, bounce, rise, bounce, rise, roll almost over, and then stop with a sickly lurch, landing that would have driven an instructor wild. But the plane was down, and if our guess was correct, Harry was still all right. Dick ignored the low Osage hedge that bordered the field. He cut right into it with a roar of motor and a beat of his car that nearly threw me through the roof, and him with the wheel in his hand almost through the windshield. But we were in and alongside the plain, a good ten miles from the field, and on grand, solid earth. Even as I leaped from the car, I wondered that Harry did not open the hood over his head. I clambered up and caught at the hood, pulling it open with all my strength. Harry was looking very pale and sick, smiling a little, but quite content, just to sit there and wait. As I hoisted myself in beside him, I saw Dick's head appear on the opposite side. All right? We both demanded at once. Dick leaned over and snapped off Harry's helmet. Harry shook his head as if to clear it of sleep, and nodded rather greenly, or grayly. Okay, he said, but when he stood up to get out, he was glad enough of our help. We pulled him out. His legs were rubbery, and his hands were given to a flutter and a shake. He sat down on the grass. Quick, cried Dick, let him sit there. They'll be sending up a plane to look for him. It's a matter of seconds. It was indeed. The earphones which we had jerked from Harry's head were simply spluttering orders. Alternately there came, Are you all right? And, What in thunder do you think you are doing? And, Where are you? But we had no time to decipher tangled voices. Dick was into the ship's tiny cabin, rooting around furiously. But he didn't have to root far. There was the piece of tubing identical with the one we had seen last night, and it led directly from the engine to the cockpit. No attempt had been made even to hide the tubing. It was as if the man who had placed it there had known that he could cover it, with his sweater, or his coat until the hood was closed. A young pilot all absorbed in his instrument board and the final instructions wouldn't even notice this misplaced piece of piping. Right from the heart of the engine and into that closed, tightly fastened compartment, scentless, invisible carbon monoxide could be, 
and undoubtedly had been pumped in a straight, vicious stream. Yes, and if the man in charge of the engine had a prior chance with the motor, he might even mix with the gasoline some still more powerful gas developer. Dick and I spoke our suspicions at precisely the same minute. The picture of that dark, saturnine mechanic, standing almost on guard at the plane, flashed into our brains at once. Rodriguez, we both said. The murderous scheme was also hideously simple. Into the young pilot's lungs was pumped a poisonous gas that he didn't notice or suspect. In a brief time, sleep or unconsciousness would knock all power from his hands. Orders from the ground would be to no avail. Perhaps he would stall the motor. Some of them had done that. Perhaps he would simply let the plane drop, himself with it. He might bail out, reviving in the rush of fresh air before he landed. But in any case, the plane would be picked up a hopeless mass of flaming junk, picked up by the people who had manipulated it into a death trap and could, if need be, wrench out the piece of tubing, a devastating evidence of poisonous death. That glass plant, I thought, in swift gratitude, had given me something more important than even the broadcasting outfit, and I blessed the sweet nudge of providence that sent me rooting around in those supposedly empty barrels. We lifted Harry into the car and raced him up and down the road until his head was fairly cleared of the fumes. Then we dropped him once more on the edge of the field that held his plane, watched him walk back. He was steady enough now, and ourselves loafed off down the road. Sure enough, a low-flying machine was circling overhead. In a minute now, they'd see him, report that he was safe, and, well, what would happen remained to be seen. But this much we had determined. Harry was to say nothing of our plan or his dizziness. For the purposes of the flying field, he had simply come to land in a sort of inexplicable funk. He was, he confessed, a pretty poor aviator, but he'd seen that level field, and he just lost his nerve and landed. A cock-and-bull story, all right but a story they'd have to accept for want of a better one. And that night... We watched the relief plane circling down, and then we drove off and hid ourselves a cold drink in a smoke. At ten o'clock that night, Harry and Dick preceded the arrival of our important guests in my lab. Did I get mine? was Harry's only comment. Morin didn't know whether to be relieved and put his arms around me, or to call me the worst student flyer he'd ever seen. I know genuine relief when I see it. He couldn't have been happier to see me if I'd been the original prodigal son. And then to prove he's no sissy, he laid me flatter than a dresser scarf and grounded me for a month. Sincere? I demanded. You're sure that relief was real? Harry shrugged. The French can act, but not like that. It was the real thing. Whatever this mess is, he's not in it. Then came a knock that admitted no time for polite invitation and Paris Green and Shorty, whatever his name may be, came into the room. I guess they've seen movie FBI men who never take their hats off indoors, or maybe FBI men, movie and real, don't take their hats off. Anyhow, they collapsed into chairs, and Paris asked, with all the interest of a Nobel Prize scientist interviewing a subnormal, Well? We told them briefly our plot of the morning, and what we'd found. If it interested them, they hid their interest magnificently. All Paris did was shift his weight slightly, and using one half his underworked mouth, demand, Where's the plane, Thorn? Still on the field for all I know, Harry answered. Let's go, said Paris. 
Once more, Dick's car took the road, I sitting in the back between the two FBI pretties, and feeling as if I needed only handcuffs to make the scene complete. A solitary private armed with, I guessed, an unloaded rifle stood at the roadside, guarding the stalled plane. He stopped us with a sharp order that seemed to crack through the night like a shot. Paris, who apparently never missed a chance to put people in their place, gave him a sharp answer, and we strode across the field toward the plane, which was now faintly outlined in the night. I had not noticed before that Harry had landed not far from a straw stack, an old one that had grown solid with many rains and the fall of many heavy snows. Naturally, that stack formed a perfect camouflage for the plane. Some impulse made me swing slightly to the left and away from the others, so that I saw the plane, no longer sunk in the protective shadow of the stack, but sharply outlined against the sky. What I had not dared to hope for, I saw. Scrambling out of the cabin, the length of pipe in his hand, was a man. I let out a yell, startling the others into a dead stop instead of spurring them on to a burst of speed, and dashed towards the car with my best sprinting since the New England field events. Only he was smarter than I was. One glance at me, and he melted into the heavy shadow between the plane and the straw stack. By the time I reached the plane, the others, thundering behind me, he was gone. Paris shot a beam of light toward the straw stack, and caught exactly nothing. I dashed on toward the stack, the others still bad seconds behind me, and saw that not fifty yards away, a little finger of woods stretched out toward the stack a finger that led into the broad hand of a thick woods, which would be at that hour of night as impenetrable as a coal mine. Briefly I told the others what I had seen, and then strode back to the plane, grabbed Paris's flash out of his hand, and climbed up into the cockpit. As I had suspected, the length of pipe was gone. I climbed down. Paris turned the light, which he sharply snatched from my hand, full into my face. How do I know that this isn't a fish story, the whole business? How much do you really know? What's the idea of pulling us away twice to show us things that don't exist? First it's a radio sending set, now it's a poison gas pipe. I flared. The days had been nerve-wracking enough. This dumb detective's leaping down my throat and batting my soft palate was too much. What I know, I almost shouted at him, is your business to find out, and when you do, if you ever do... Oh, I know, I was talking out of my head, but the pair of them made me sick, and then for just a queasy instant they made me sicker. For Paris shot out his left palm and poured the warm golden light of his flash onto it. Maybe before I clap you in jail and let Nils go, you'll tell me what you were doing with that. In his palm lay the eyepiece that one night had been pilfered from my collar box. Just for a moment, I say, I went a little sick but for some reason Paris continued to do the talking. Where did I get it? he asked, wasting my unuttered question. And then he couldn't keep the regret out of his voice. I wish I knew. It came in the mail this morning with a note telling me that this object had been found in your room. Now talk. Instead I laughed. Sorry, I said, but that's not the missing eyepiece. That's just one we experimented with and discarded. I don't believe you snapped Paris. There was nothing for me to do but shrug my shoulders. Earlier in the game, when I knew they were looking for that eyepiece, I had done the thing a fellow would most likely do. I'd given the eyepiece to Julia May, and thrown this one into the box, 
hoping it might mislead whoever was eager to get the peace. But as I stood there with a clammy feeling coming down my spine, I realized that I hadn't misled them for very long. Never would they have delivered the eyepiece to the FBI if they hadn't known it was a fake, and hence not worth keeping. When, in addition, they realized that it could serve to throw suspicion on me, another providential inspiration seized me. The good Lord, or a very busy guardian angel, was with me that night. Give me your flash for just a minute, I said to Paris. Surprisingly, perhaps you believe my explanation after all, he handed me the flash. I ran over to the straw stack, and in a second was skinning up the steep, solid side. What now? demanded Paris. What's up? echoed Shorty, making his first coherent remark of the evening. It took willpower not to squash that stupid question with a smart-alecky answer. Anyhow, I needed my breath for the climb. Soon I was at the top, entrenching the yellow hay with the light of the flash. There it was, all right, just as I had hoped and prayed it would be. I reached out, picked up the piece of tubing, and tossed it down. Let it fall on the ground, I cried as I tossed it. There may be fingerprints on it besides mine. Yours might be enough, I heard Paris say, through his teeth. I slid down to rejoin them. There it is, I said. Then when I produce that radio set for you. Your fingerprints on that, too? asked Paris, regarding the two with the air of a fastidious spinster prodding a land crab with a cane. We loafed back to the campus, and Dick dropped the FBI men at their hotel. Paris's last words to me were characteristic of him. He held up the tubing, which he had wrapped in a handkerchief, and said, Don't leave this campus, Prentice. Anybody who knows as much as you seem to know knows more. So I won't talk, won't I? I mimicked, and we started off into the darkness again. Drive fast, I said, trying to keep the tremor out of my voice, to Julia Mays. Dick, who never needed a second invitation to show the speed of that car of his, pushed the darkness aside with the prow of his battered, inspired wreck. But even though we were doing the distance in nothing flat, I was sharply sick with worry. No doubt about it, the conspirators now knew I'd tricked them with the fake eyepiece. And since they thought I didn't have it, wouldn't they think naturally, as I had thought naturally, of Julia May? Dramatic as I knew the gesture to be, I wanted to yield to the impulse to beat my temples with my fists. When a man loves a girl, and then deliberately goes about throwing perils in her way, and making her the target for villains who apparently regard human lives no more highly than they do discarded banana skins. With an audible sigh, I saw ahead of me the house of old Eisenberg and Julia May. A light upstairs may warm yellow the curtains at the windows of a bedroom. My first impulse was to say, Drive on, Dick, in formula. Home, James. My second impulse was to stop and ask Julia May to slip downstairs for a second to reassure me. I might, it struck me, ask her, late though the hour was, for the eyepiece, and find a hiding place that wouldn't be so risky as the handbag which, woman-like, she invariably carried with her. Having noted at various times the wild and disordered contents of women's handbags, it had seemed to me a perfect hideout for the eyepiece. Just a minute, I said. Dick stopped, and I hopped from the car and took the low step in a single bound. A long wait followed my tentative ringing of the bell. I was all for leaving. After all, wasn't it nonsense to be calling on even the one and only girl 
and calling under the impulse of a fear I should hesitate to share with her, particularly at this hour of the night? Then the light in the reception hall blazed forth. I heard a chain being slipped protectively across the door, a lock shot back, and the door opened a trifle. Mitzi lay one suspicious eye against the opening. Then, as she saw my lank frame, she turned on the personality, suffused me in a glamour-girl smile, and said the conventional nothings. I brushed them aside with what amounted to rudeness. "'May I speak to Julia May?' I asked. Her arched eyebrows reached anew and perhaps all-time high. "'Julia May?' she echoed in honest surprise. "'Where was the woman a consummate actress?' "'Why, I thought she was out with you.' My heart fell right onto the porch and lay there without a bounce. Even through that scant opening in the door, she must have read the consternation in my not-too-mobile face, for she poured out an explanation that was clearly meant to be an amplification of her thesis. A phone call had come, for me, she supposed, the sound of a car at the door, Julia May all dressed and down the stairs. That was all she knew. And what more was there to know? Don't blame me, she concluded. Did she? I asked, trying to sound casual when the mere fact that I asked such a question made the matter big and significant. Did she take her handbag? Does any woman go out without a handbag? She countered logically enough. But I had no time for logic. Please see, it would be on her dresser, wouldn't it? A patter of patient feet up the stairs, a little cascade of descending sound, and she was back in the doorway. Of course she took it. And then, though I marveled that one could so hammer the obvious, anything wrong? Not a thing, I countered. How's Mr. Elwell? Was there a shade of hesitation before she answered? As well as one could, except, considering. Her look was suddenly unfriendly. For further details, why don't you see him yourself? He seems to interest you so much. With that, she slammed the door in my face. I stood there not knowing what to do. Maybe all this was nothing. Or was I silly to hope that it was nothing? Maybe it was just coincidence. Maybe Julia May, tired of the atmosphere of that house, was with a girlfriend. Maybe. Standing there and indulging myself in wishful thinking, I suddenly stared at the lilac bush that grew in the nook where the stairs right-angled into the porch. Against the green I saw a clear splash of white. One bound brought me to it, and I caught up the object that mentally I had grasped long before I held it. It was one of Julia May's handkerchiefs, right enough, and the familiar scent of her perfume floated up to me, delicate but convincing as a name in letters a yard high. The handkerchief was knotted in the center. Our agreed-upon signal, her knotted handkerchief dropped behind her in her hour of need. If I had heard her scream, I couldn't have known more clearly that my Julia May was facing peril and knew it. End of chapter 6